Welcome everyone. My name is Ahmed Tekeliol. I am the editor-in-chief of Maidan and the Maidan podcast at now Abu Suleiman Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. If you visit our website, uh, you will see that there is a name change and you can read a little bit more about that and a new generous endowment that the center has received. We are delighted to have also a new member of George Mason faculty and center's faculty today with us, uh, Dr. Amina Aldin, who has joined George Mason uh, over the summer to direct a new uh, project generously supported by the Luce Foundation. So this episode of Maidan podcast will introduce to our listeners who may not be familiar with Dr. Amina's academic work, both herself and also the Black American Muslim Internationalism Project. We call this the BAMI project, B-A-M-I. So, Dr. Amina, uh, welcome to this episode of Maidan Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here on Maidan and at George Mason and the Abu Suleiman Center and with the Black American Muslim Internationalism Project. It's an exciting project. Wonderful. Thank you. And we will hear more about the project from you. Uh, you will be the director of the project. You'll be the PI. Uh, and, um, and, and we are, uh, we are super excited about that. But, uh, I wanted to, to introduce Dr. Amina Aldin briefly. Uh, Dr. Amina served uh, for many years at, at DePaul uh, University. She is a professor emeritus of Islamic studies in the Department of Religious Studies at DePaul in 2006, she founded the U.S.'s first undergraduate baccalaureate programs in Islamic world studies. We'll talk a little bit about that. She is a former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Islamic Law and Culture, and she has many publications from African-American Islam to Questions of Faith to uh, Transnational Muslims in America and many others. In addition to her scholarship, Dr. Amina is also very active in the nonprofit world, serving as board member of uh, Inner City Muslim Action Network, Iman, Muslim uh, ARC, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, uh, and several other nonprofits. So uh, she's a scholar, activist, perhaps we can we can say, and she has been a mentor to many scholars uh, and a colleague to to many in the field. Dr. Amina, thank you so much for joining us again. My first question will be to ask you to talk a little bit about your life story. How did you end up, you know, studying? you know, religion and religious studies and, you know, what were some of the, the initial questions that led you to, to focus on study of religion, study of Islam in America and, and broadly transnational networks uh, among several other initiatives. And then we will talk a little bit about your years in Chicago and the several initiatives you built in the Midwest. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> well, I was leaving medicine as my first profession. And Dr. Ishmael Faruqi was teaching Islamic studies at Temple University in Philadelphia, along with Said Hussein Nas. And both of them kind of pushed me, I won't say nicely recruited, actually pushed me into Islamic studies because they were looking for African Americans who had, you know, successfully completed graduate work, work beyond the uh, bachelor's degree. 
to do Islamic studies. They mm-hmm. uh, didn't feel that there were enough Americans who were Muslim and were interested in Islamic studies. So I let them bamboozle me into Islamic studies. And I was amazed because I had done there, I think I might have had a history course long, long time ago (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I graduated undergrad as a physics and math major and went on to pathology and pharmacy and medicine as a PA. So I really didn't know a lot about the field of religion, nor Islamic studies beyond what a believer would engage. And so mm-hmm. I tippy-toed onto Islamic studies. And the most fascinating thing was I was the only female in my class and the only American. And the men weren't quite sure what to do with me. And, of course, I had a young daughter who I drug to class with me, and they're saying, oh, I'm going to really, I don't think we do this. And I said, hey, every day is a new day. I don't do this either. <laughs> and uh, your your graduate school years, uh, is this late 80s, early 90s, Dr. Amina? Yeah, well, middle 80s. Mm-hmm. And dragging a kid you know, all around the world to do this, that, and the other. We, at, in Temple's program, had to learn, uh, what was it, three languages beyond the one you spoke. And, of course, for us in Islamic studies, it was, Arabic was foundational, but then I chose German and French. And, you know, going to Germany, working, working <laughs> on German, which was hilarious. France wasn't so bad, you know. Germany, something different. The Arabic I did in the Sudan, I think the most difficult part was that Islamic studies doesn't have methodology. I mean, in the Western sense of methodology. So you have to figure out a way in. So I found myself, in addition to my programmatic studies, tipping over to philosophy, tipping over to anthropology to try to figure out what I could combine that was uh, true to what I was studying. But a fascinating study, but for me, all the way through was a one-sided study because Mm -hmm. we didn't look at Islam in the world. And I am a fanatic about the Ottoman Empire, so I'm saying, well, where are the Ottomans? There were lots of things missing. Even South Asian studies were missing. Far Eastern studies of Islam were missing. So it was like you put a little check in the back of your head. If I am successful in finishing this, I'm going to go and study some more and do those things, which provided the background when I started teaching at DePaul in Chicago, I was afforded both the support and the opportunity to make this Islamic World Studies program, but I truly wanted to make it Islamic World Studies, not just Mm -hmm. one culture's studies. Mm -hmm. 
that that gives me so much to to so much additional so many additional questions uh, to ask. One of which is to ask you to reflect a little bit more about um, like the nature of graduate programs in religion. I assume like some of your uh, cohorts members are also like you know prominent names in in the field. What has changed in in your perspective, Dr. Amina, since your time uh, as a, as a graduate student in religion and in Islamic studies, and today? There's a related question, and I think like you know, 9/11 as important as it is, and I want to ask you how did that impact your efforts to establish this first program at, at Nepal? Uh, but at the same time, what role do you see in 9/11 and the different challenges it has brought? for academia and the new openings that it has brought for academia and for Islamic studies? Um, I think, and I didn't know it then, but there were a series of schools, University of Michigan, as one example, University of Chicago, of affiliate schools that somehow were affiliated with the United States defense program. Mm-hmm. They studied Islamic studies differently. I'm, I'm not sure how to describe because I wasn't in those programs. I think the language requirements for our program and then the unfortunate murder of Dr. Ishmael Faruqi set us on a different path. And on that path, opportunities of all sorts were opened up to us because then I had professors like Mohammed Arkhoun out of Algeria mm-hmm. and was given a wonderful opportunity to study a little bit at the Sorbonne. And that opportunity gave me a very, very different perspective because I was studying with Muslims who had come from the political chaos in North Africa, a little bit different, and met some lifelong Turkish friends there. You know, it it was just a different mix. They weren't muftis and Mm -hmm. et cetera, tied in a particular way to a particular ideology, but also to do Islamic ethics, which I did with uh, Dr. Sachidina, who's there at George Mason. Mm -hmm. It just opened a different portal, so to speak, for me to do Islamic law, ethics, but also to see and hear from men and women in ways that I wouldn't normally have uh, been able to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the challenges you faced in establishing the the program at DePaul? Um, Was 9-11 a factor? well, 9-11 came, oh goodness. To remind our, our listeners, you started the program at DePaul at two, in 2006. 9-11 was very difficult for me. Uh, the death threats, the uh, FBI winding up attaching agents to me to keep me alive. My dean and the president of the university who I knew were very, very protective, you know, which wasn't helping the death threats. But I had agents in my classrooms because Daniel Pipes and others had banded together to pay some students to be in our classroom and disrupt our classes. 
it was actually one of my years of a sabbatical. It's not really a sabbatical, it's really time off. And I had no time off because I was everywhere lecturing. It was a very stressful time Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was really going on. And the U.S.'s take is always a take on what serves them, not not necessarily what actually is happening. But my impetus was, you know, Muslims are as shocked and dismayed by this as any other American, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, they're trying, we're all trying to figure out mm-hmm. what is going on. But on the other hand, uh, Muslim anger at the United States, it, the, the, the reasons are long. And if you refuse to engage those reasons, then you have chaos and other kinds of um, instances. Yeah. And the U.S. propaganda machine is just like Mm -hmm. any other propaganda machine. And I watched my buddies being turned into enemies because they ran like CARE or, or, you know, ISNA or somewhere else. I mean, it was outrageous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to, like, you know, talk a little bit about something that that you have mentioned just to to backtrace to to your temple, uh, to your Philadelphia days. How did Professor Ismail Raji Al-Faruqi's death impact you as a graduate student and uh, your cohort members? This was 1986, and and one day he's assassinated, essentially. Well, I had known him for years, and Ismail and Yulemya, his wife, were really members of every community in Philadelphia. They went everywhere. They were no a no couple, Lemia and her art stuff, and and which was beautiful. And Ishmael talking about not just Palestinian woes, but things that he felt needed to be done, not necessarily in establishing Islam in America, but for Muslims in America. So we as graduate students work with him in the establishment of the American Islamic College in Chicago, Triple IT, all kinds of endeavors. We as graduate students, and I guess that's where the activism part comes in. It's like you study on one hand, oh, but then you have this other stuff to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what made Islamic studies exciting for me. The men and women I work with were just wonderful. We had long, very tiring conversations on what should an Islamic university in the United States look like? What should Triple IT do? What should it serve? You know, what kind of literature did we want to put out? Because later we found that the United States had cast any Islamic literature as like an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, it was all of these things that we were fighting against. And I have to say, uh, his murder just, I mean, not only did it shock us in Philadelphia, and especially his students, it just almost paralyzed us for a moment before we realized he would really be upset if we didn't continue his work. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for that. The other question that that I wanted to ask was, um, you spent 
long time in the Philadelphia area uh, for your education, and then you move to Chicago. When we start talking about Black American Muslim Internationalism Project, we will talk about sites, about cities, about movements. Two questions, you know, how do you see Islam to be distinctive in these two sides? What makes Philadelphia unique? What makes Chicago area unique in your opinion? And how was your academic work impacted by the the sites, the cities that you lived in, uh, the places that you uh, that you were living in? Well, Philadelphia was a wonderful experience for me of Islam and Muslims, but communities were very fluid. People felt the warmth and the nurture, but also the challenges of community. Immigrants, of course, were all over the place back then, and I'm talking about the early 70s. They were all over the place, but so few in number, they didn't do the racism thing. They didn't do the stereotypical thing. They were in and out of the African-American community as we were in and out of their communities. Moving to Chicago, you know, I mean, Philadelphia, you had some of the beginning, so to speak, in one sense, African-American Muslim communities from the East Coast side. The Midwest was a much different place. By the time I got there, immigrant communities had enough folk, uh, ethnic groups, so that the ethnic groups were very uh, exclusive. They tolerate others, but only with a kind of limited toleration. And you could see communities kind of growing in different trajectories so to speak. My job as a researcher and a scholar was to go meet people in each of those communities belonging nowhere, but kind of being a fly on the wall everywhere. And there were different struggles, the same in, in some respects, but different in other respects. And then I found myself being an interlocutor trying to explain communities to each other and why there, there was a greater need for them to come together on issues of social justice, et cetera, than there was for them to remain isolated. So two different, kind, you know, in Philadelphia, the chances of you seeing a Muslim are, are everywhere you look, there's a Muslim. In Chicago, the chance you have to be in a particular neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and Muslims are very unfriendly. Mm-hmm. In Philadelphia, some groups are very unfriendly, but largely the you know all the other groups they're very friendly, and they're all over the place. I was there recently at Masjid Allah. It was during Ramadan, and a woman had her kids outside the masjid. They had made goodie bags for the fasting folk to break their fast with. It was the cutest thing, but typically Philadelphia. You would never find that in Chicago. Thank you so much for that. And thinking to your African-American Islam, which came out in 95, and thinking to your transnational Muslims in America, which came out in 2006, kind of like, you know, follows through from these. Your PhD project itself, Dr. Amina, I assume African-American Islam 
sort of is is a published version of your uh, dissertation or was there a more specific focus of the dissertation uh, any groups any particular themes that it focused on beyond the book well i think you know as you all know dissertations are in a group kind of all by themselves and publishers don't publish dissertations but i had a wonderful routledge sought me out i had a wonderful editor who really worked with me because i was writing the dissertation at the same time that i was kind of uh, finishing the book and by then i had my methodological approaches i had a better handle on them thinking to your your conversations with your supervisor I, i don't know who ended up being your supervisor at at temples uh, religion program uh, for your phd but what what are some of the uh, so, some advice that you give to younger scholars around <laughs> thinking about their their phd projects their relationship with their supervisors um you know i had um, an interesting crew that was my dissertation came and everybody wanted to send me their own sets and I said no 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 you all meet send me one set i can't you know i can't, this will drive me crazy but i had champions the blind scholar i'm not remembering his name uh so the the, the late professor ayub uh yeah. the late professor, professor ayub, ayub. Uh, come on just as i was finishing Salim and Yang was one of my outside people and I I found that what I did was I, I, there were questions on and I said you know what all of you gentlemen are determined to drive me crazy so let me take charge of this and when you take charge of what questions that are important to be answered how you work about them and what conclusions you drew you know what your hypothesis was or whether you find that out or not or something different what wonderful conclusions you did come through with you're finished but i find that now students are really really confused they don't seem to be getting comprehensive advice from advisors and these are people who have been in Islamic studies for a minute some of them are giving an advice they would have given students 30 years ago and i'm saying well that can't be right and i mean students i advised 30 years ago i don't give that same advice to students now and i have several phd students students benefit and work best when they're guided they of course want all the answers you know tell me what's going to happen here and 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 what should i answer here not realizing that they are the scholar nobody knows really what they know because they're making a new entry into the field of knowledge and trying to pump up that confidence is fun mhm Thank you so much for for sharing that Dr. Amina. Now switching gears a little bit. Um I I want us to start talking about uh, Black American Muslim Internationalism project. 
if you could give us an introduction to the project, your involvement, your role, what should our listeners, the audience uh, expect from the project in the coming months and, and, and years? This is a three-year-long project, as we mentioned, uh, generously supported by Henry Lewis Foundations, the new initiative on understanding race and religion in America. And, and we, are, we are pleased and we are so excited about it and your uh, involvement with it. Uh, if you could give us a bit of an introduction to, to the BAMI project and how you envision it making an impact. The BAMI project is still being formalized, so to speak. I think um, the best thing was an opportunity was there and the men and women at Abu Suleiman Oh, it might have been Ali Vorek then, took advantage and wrote for funding. But it's still an incomplete project. But it is tackling theological debate, religious practice, the definitions of race and American identity, and hopes to map and explore various sections of the African-American experience vis-a-vis global and historical Islamic practices and institutions. African-Americans have been going overseas, exploring Islam for a long time, decades, but it's never really been talked about. And how they're movement back and forth across the ocean has influences here and has influences there beyond just the American who goes, who has a few pennies that turn into dollars over there because of the rate exchange. There's a lot of of exchange of both experiences, understanding of spirituality. So the project will work in collaboration with leading university-based scholars, a network of community-based historians in three cities that were chosen, Washington, D.C. area, Philadelphia, and Atlanta, to try to at least provide the seeds for an ongoing multi-tiered research and programming initiative. And I think it, I know it will influence academic and public narratives around race, religion, and identity, because even in the broader society, much hasn't been done about that. You know, we explore race as if the other things don't exist. You know, we um, we rarely look at religion. So I think this project will introduce another prong or two into the conversation. So toward that end, we're going to hopefully use Maidan, which is a digital publishing platform, to house both our public lectures, our convenings with scholars and community leaders, some special programs on women who are often left out of the conversation, and some training programs. And I think after a conversation I had yesterday, the major training effort will be focused on training perhaps some undergraduate students, I hope, and graduate students too, on how to be ethnographers mm-hmm. so that you keep building. Another piece 
that we hope to get in there is uh, spaces, events, public lectures, where we can have scholars meet with community leaders. So that the community can tell you if you're talking about me in ways that are accurate or not. I did this once a long time ago. I was running a series of um, programs like that. They were wildly successful and I think very informative for the the scholars and it gave the community some comeuppance, you know? It's like, okay, I had my say in that. He or she really listened to what we had to say about that over there. And that is so important. I think at George Mason, we will have some of the convenings, but I hope that the project is able to influence an opening around the After Malcolm project. And as we collect some of these interviews, et cetera, I think that it's going to be important because all around the country, people are in disparate places collecting things, running archives. So uh, what I would like to see is for us to use virtual reality to introduce the scope of not only the After Malcolm Project, but a scope of where the center becomes the place to turn to, to find out where all these other sites are. Because mm-hmm. that's a, a service that we can give, which is different from what's already there. So we'll be documenting, analyzing, and disseminating histories that help challenge the pervasive narrative assumptions about Black communities, almost all of which have very little to say about spirituality and nothing to say about their uh, international character. Thank you, Dr. Amina. And yeah, so that aspect of the project really um, is super exciting for me and that the intentionality behind not making it a merely uh, university scholars sort of um, behind this kind of like, you know, project, but rather to be uh, to be engaged in the community, to be steeped in the community and to work together with the community, um, the impact of communities, especially under your leadership is, is, is really exciting. As, as you've mentioned, the After Malcolm Project starts documenting the um, Islamic Party and the Dar the Dar al Islam uh, movements, Bami uh, will continue doing that, but also, you know, will will move beyond as well. What are some public-facing outputs that you envision from the projects? Given that you have a wonderful track record of doing that while you you, you were at at the poll at in Chicago, what can our audiences expect? Uh, what would be ways for them to to engage with the project at this uh, at this moment? Hmm. Publishing outlets? Hmm. Well, one is I'd like to stick a finger in IIIT's publishing space. Uh, It should be a place where all Muslims can go and not just readers of Arabic. That's number one. And it will expand their understanding of Islamic thought because we're going to have a lot of Islamic thought that comes out of this project. Secondly, I'm hoping that the space uh, that you provide us at Maidan is large enough 
because I want to do a bunch of podcasts, you know, with a space for people to reply after or comment after hearing the podcast, mm-hmm. but also to encourage folk, especially the scholars, to provide some articles, you know, as seeds for their own research. You know, the world of the university is different in terms of its support for scholarship, where scholars, myself and others, could go get a Fulbright and really go and plan ourselves somewhere and work. Those are far and very difficult to get nowadays. Uh, But there is, of course, within the age of technology, grants for digital projects. And I think in the world of digital stuff, one of the things that makes that world exciting are the possibilities of virtual reality. Mm -hmm. We are super excited about that and definitely encourage our listeners to be on the look for new announcements from the project. There are some conversations happening, some will be more public. So please uh, be on the look for that project. Um, like team includes, you know, our colleague Abbas Barzigar, um, Anissa Mohammed from Harvard University, um, Yusuf Carter from uh, UNC, Sir Aisha Adawiya, and you know Imam Hadid Griggs, and 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 many other sort of exciting names and and colleagues who will be contributing to to different aspects uh, of the project under Dr. Amina's uh, leadership. And I also am honored to to be in that space together with you all. Dr. Amina, we are coming slowly to the end of our time. And I want to ask if, if there's anything that you want to mention before we close. And hopefully this first of many BAMI-related podcasts under, uh, under Maidan podcast, I want to, to ask if you want to mention anything in addition. I don't know if I have anything to add. You've covered everything so well. I have a super advisory board, yourself included, who are making life really quite easy for me as a new project director. Mason is a bureaucracy I never encountered in life. <laughs> but, ever, you know, having only worked at a private university, coming to a state-owned university is really, really special. But I think our project will enliven the center and its Islamic global effort, and perhaps even become a model where other projects in the center can see how they can expand their work. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's our hope as well. And once again, we're super uh, honored and excited to have you on board and look forward to bringing BAMI projects, many outputs into Maidan readership and the Maidan podcast listener uh, audience attention. Dr. Amina Aldin, thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to, to, to sharing this, this podcast soon with our listeners. I wanted to give a shout out also to my colleague, Micah Hughes and Nicholas Ganti. Micah is the Associate Editor of Maidan Podcast. And Nicholas is our audio editor who does a lot of behind the, the scenes work to get our podcast published. So once again, uh, Dr. Amina, thank you so much for giving us your time. 
and sharing your life story, your academic story, your your insights into where scholarship today stands, and as well as you know giving information and uh, the outlook, the vision for Black American Muslim internationalism project to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you.